How do I accept the people in my life that I disagree with without becoming a stumbling block to them? How do I accept that person that I disagree with, maybe with their beliefs or their worldview or their lifestyle or their associations, maybe strongly disagree with them? question that leads to is that question that we answer very often. How do I love the sinner without approving of the sin? Our passage this morning is found in John chapter 8. And I want you to open your Bibles with me now to that passage. But I'm going to step back a couple of verses into chapter 7 to give us just a little bit of context for this, this story that we're looking at. In John chapter 7, beginning at verse 53, it says, Then they all went home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now the way that's explained in the Gospel of John is that Jesus had been teaching in the temple courts during the Feast of Tabernacles. This was the last time Jesus would be in Jerusalem during feast time until the following spring when he would come at the Passover time. It was during that Passover that Jesus would be betrayed and arrested and, and crucified. But Jesus was preaching there in the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles, even though the religious leaders wanted to silence him, even though they were beginning to plan to to arrest him. And Jesus preached boldly. So after that great confrontation at the, the Feast of Tabernacles and the temple courts, everybody goes home. Jesus goes to camp out in the Mount of Olives, probably sleeping under a tree, which would have been his custom. And in the morning, he shows up again, back to the temple courts where he's going to teach again. That's what it says in verse 2. He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. I want you to picture this in your mind. Jesus is there in the temple courts to teach, and the people have gathered around. It's a large crowd, maybe 100 people, maybe 200 people gathered there to hear him teach. Now, the Temple Mount is a very large area, and, and Jesus attracted a lot of attention, and so there's a large crowd there to hear him teach. Jesus sits down, which is the, the posture of rabbis for teaching in his day. And I'm certain that Jesus taught them mind-blowing, uh, earth-shattering, life-altering things from the Word of God. I'm sure he was teaching them things that they had never heard before. I'm sure they were enthralled by his teaching. But then in verse 3, we are told the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Jesus is teaching. He doesn't care that the religious leaders want to silence him, that they want to arrest him. Jesus doesn't care about that. And then the scribes and the Pharisees bring in a woman. And it's not an exaggeration to say that they were dragging this woman in. She was not a willing participant in this part of the drama. She didn't want to be there. Verse 3 tells us that this woman was caught in, in adultery. Now, Jesus, this woman was brought to her. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, why was this woman brought to Jesus here as he's teaching in front of all of these people? They interrupt Jesus' teaching. Why did they do that? Why didn't they just bring her into custody and wait for Jesus to finish teaching and then come to him and say, Rabbi, we got a tricky situation here. What do you think that we should do? I mean, does anybody think that this is really a legitimate question that they're asking? 
they really want to know what this esteemed rabbi had to say? No. As Mark read earlier, they are setting a trap. And this woman is being used to set that trap. In verse 4, we're told this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Some translations say she was caught in the very act of adultery. And so these religious leaders, these scribes, these Pharisees bring this woman, and there's shame and humiliation all over her face. She is being dragged to the front of the group, 100, 200 people, and she's being dragged to the front of the group to stand before Jesus. And they interrupt his teaching. They demand his attention. They say, Jesus, what would you have us do in this situation? What would you have us do with this woman? You can picture the scene, right? This woman has had her clothes thrown on hastily. Her her hair is a mess. Her eyes, if they're open at all, are are looking away. She's not making eye contact with anybody. She's bowed down low to the ground, perhaps even flung to the ground in front of Jesus. She's being held against her will. She's in the custody of the religious police who found her involved with a man who is not her husband. She was caught in the very act of adultery. Can you picture it? And they ask the question in verse 5, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They hope to catch Jesus in this dilemma because Jesus has one of two answers that he can give. Either he can say, stone her. That's what the law says. Or he can say, let her go. Now if he says, stone her, he's demanding that she be executed. And then he gets in trouble with the Roman officials. Rome does not allow the Jews to execute their own criminals. And so if he gives that answer, he's in trouble with Rome. Or if he says, let her go, the response is going to be, well, Jesus, don't you care about the law of Moses? The law clearly states that the penalty for adultery is death. Don't you care about the law, Jesus? These religious leaders think they've got Jesus trapped. No matter how he answers, he's going to be in trouble with somebody. But look what happens next. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. We don't know what Jesus wrote on the ground. It's been driving Bible scholars crazy for about 2,000 years. And if you read what nine different Bible scholars say, you'll probably get 10 different opinions. I don't know what Jesus wrote on the ground. But we get a clue in verse 8 when Jesus bends down to write again. It says in the Greek, the wording in the Greek indicates that Jesus was writing against someone. Many people believe he's writing against these accusers, against these religious leaders, maybe even writing down specific sins that they themselves had participated in. We don't know what he wrote, but whatever he wrote, it had the effect of, of deflating the crowd. I want us to notice the posture of Jesus in this. He doesn't react immediately with anger or outrage. He doesn't turn to the woman in in her humiliation and and speak to her condescendingly. He doesn't turn to the religious leaders and and speak to them about their hypocrisy. There are other times where Jesus approached these religious leaders in that way, but not this time. No, Jesus Jesus spoke to them differently. Instead of in a way that, that causes us maybe even to scratch our head, Jesus reacts in a way that he does everything he could possibly do to lower the tension, to lower the energy in the crowd. Can you imagine the tenseness of this situation? And instead of kicking it up a notch, Jesus actually lowers the tension. I want us to think for a moment about how we can react like Jesus 
when we find ourselves in similar situations? How can we be like Jesus in those tough situations that we find ourselves in? Notice that Jesus stooped down, that he lowered himself, that he looked at this woman eye to eye. He didn't stand over her. He didn't look down on her. He gave her the respect and the dignity of looking her in the eye. He treated her as a person and not as an object defined by her sin, right? To Jesus, she was still created by God and valued by God. How often do we objectify a person that we disagree with and cause them to lose their humanity in our own eyes? When we find ourselves in these situations, we need to remind ourselves of something. This person, this person that I disagree with, that I disagree with vehemently, this person is precious to God, and they should be precious to me as well. The Pharisees had brought a woman caught in the act of adultery. I wonder who the Pharisees would bring to Jesus today. Maybe it'd be somebody whose sexuality was outside of biblical norms. Maybe it would be somebody whose, whose crime we consider particularly evil. Maybe it'd be somebody whose political views that we find particularly distasteful. We all have beliefs and behaviors that we struggle with that when someone we know lives those out, we struggle with how to relate to them, how to respond to them. Think for a moment, how would Jesus respond to that person that you struggle with? And how he, would he have you respond to them? Verse 7, we're told that when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, I don't want us to miss the first part of that verse because we're, we're so captivated by what he says in the second part, we often skip right over that first part. Jesus had failed to answer their question, and so they started badgering him. Jesus, you didn't answer our question. Jesus, you're not playing our game. Which is it, Jesus? Condemn her or let her go? I want you to notice how Jesus engaged with these, these Pharisees. They were trying to trap him. He had had problems with them in the past. They were clearly in the wrong here. But notice how Jesus treated them. Jesus respectfully engages with them. And I think that sometimes that's, how, that's an area that we struggle to be like Jesus. We disagree with their point of view. We disagree with their, their lifestyle, with their, their beliefs, with what they, they do, their actions. And instead of respectfully engaging with them, we lob verbal hand grenades at them. Or we post a, an inflammatory comment in social media. And in doing so, make it impossible to have dialogue with them. Make it impossible to, to have a relationship with them. Notice how in verse 7, Jesus raises himself up. Because for a moment here, he's going to stop engaging with this woman. And he's going to turn and look eye to eye with his religious leaders. Because he's got something piercing that he's going to say to them. Jesus looks at them in the eye and he says this, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. I want to deal first with the wrong way to understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying that you have to be perfectly sinless in order to point out sin in someone else's life. Let me give you an example from the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in his ministry planted lots of churches, many, many churches throughout Asia Minor. And in many of those churches, he had to confront sin that was going on. 
Many of the letters that we have from Paul in the New Testament are confronting things that are going on in these churches he's planted and, and confronting the sin that he is hearing about. Can you imagine if Paul was confronting sin, maybe in the church in Galatia, and somebody says, Paul, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Paul would have to say, well, okay, I guess I can't say anything because I am chief among sinners. That's not what Jesus meant here. Jesus is not saying that you must be without sin yourself before you can point out sin in someone else's life. That's not what Jesus meant. That's not the standard that he's setting for today. Jesus isn't saying the standard that only if you have never sinned even once can you point out sin or hold somebody accountable for their sin. I think it's helpful for us to understand a bit about the Jewish legal system, to understand what's required in a, in a crime that, that requires, edu, requires execution. In that situation, the one who initiates the execution, the one who casts the first stone, the one who flips the switch on the electric chair or pushes a syringe on the lethal ejection, that person is one of the witnesses to the crime. It's one of the witnesses who witnessed the crime who throws the first stone. And so basically what Jesus is saying here is I want to know who the witnesses are. And if you, the witness, can look me in the eye and say that you have, are without sin in this particular situation, then go ahead and cast the first stone. If you have done justice here, then, then go ahead. Jesus is not saying and speaking about being without sin in general. He means if you are without sin in this particular judicial proceeding, go ahead and cast the first stone. Now there's a glaring question that we see in this, this story that you've already spotted. There was a man involved in this as well. There was a man involved in this, and the fact that the man is missing shows and points out the injustice that's involved. If they really cared about justice, there would be a man and a woman who were brought before Jesus to be confronted. And the fact that there was only a woman brought before Jesus shows that they didn't care anything about justice. They didn't care anything about God's law. All they wanted to do was attack Jesus, and this woman was a weapon that they were using to do that. There's a principle involved in this story that I want us to recognize. The principle is simple. There are times when we must speak to the sins of others, but those times are rare. And usually we think we need to address the sins in other people's lives far more frequently than we do. Now, there are times when we should point out sin in others' lives, and there are times that God would have us do that. And in those situations, the principle is never speak to the sins of another person without first realizing in your heart that you are a sinner as well. Whenever we need to point out sin in someone else's life, it should be done with a broken heart, maybe even with a tear in our eye because we realize that we share common ground with this person because we are also people desperately in need of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And so we should never address the sins of another person with a superior, holier-than-thou kind of attitude. That kind of attitude creates a stench in the nostrils of God. Now, as we look at what Jesus does in verse 8, it blows my mind, Right? Once again, he stoops down. Once again, he begins to ride on the ground. And I can't help but put myself in Jesus' sandals. Because if it was me, if it was me that was involved in this, I'm sure I would have said something angry. I'm sure I would have said something sarcastic, something on the unhealthy side that, that would have caused the situation to explode, right? But not Jesus. Jesus didn't stare down these religious leaders with an act of intimidation. 
He did everything he could in the situation to lower the tension rather than raise the tension. He didn't try to change them through intimidation. He identified with the woman in her shame and her humiliation. And look what happened next. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus speaks, and then he stoops down and begins to write in the ground, and suddenly everybody starts to leave, from oldest to youngest. Now, we don't know why they left in that kind of order. Maybe it had something to do with what Jesus was writing in the ground. We don't know much of what was going through their mind, but pretty soon there's Jesus, there's this woman, and there's the crowd that had gathered to hear Jesus speak. The Pharisees, the scribes, those who brought the accusation are gone. They've all left the scene. In verse 10, Jesus straightens up and asks her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The accusers are gone. Jesus stands up. He says, now, woman, I'm going to look at you in the eye. I'm going to look you in the eye, and I'm going to speak to you about your life. Now, Jesus isn't going to condemn her. The accusers are gone. The case has been thrown out of court. Can you imagine what this feels like for this woman? This woman had, had sinned. This woman's sin was great. And yet, she experienced the goodness of having no condemnation because Jesus had drawn near to her. It's a beautiful story. It's a glorious story. And it's our story as well. That's how God brings salvation to us. In the midst of our shame, in the midst of our humiliation, the Son of God stooped down out of heaven and entered into our sinful condition, drew near to us. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. Now maybe you're reading this story and you're not putting yourself in Jesus' shoes. You're not asking yourself, how do I treat the sinner? Maybe instead you are identifying with the woman. Maybe that's your place in the story. Maybe you've been found out. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you experienced rejection because of your sin. Maybe you're fearing rejection because of your sin. The reality is, even if others have rejected you, Jesus doesn't. Jesus won't reject you. Jesus says these words to her in verse 11. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus sent her away with a call to, to leave her sin and to continue leaving that life of sin. You sinned. You're free. And sin no more. Jesus called what she did sin. Jesus was real about it. We can't soft sell what this woman did because it was a sin against God. It was a sin against her family. It was a sin against her marriage. It was a sin against her very soul. She did this, and Jesus told her, I want you to repent, and I want you to go and sin no more. Imagine this woman had a number of emotions that she felt at this moment, and I imagine that one of those emotions was sin, was, was hope. She had to be feeling some hope here, right? Because sometimes when we, when we sin, and especially when we repeat the same sin again and again and again, it leads to a feeling of defeat. It can lead to a sense of hopelessness, right? Jesus looks at her and he says, go and sin no more. Sometimes we say, I can't change. 
This is just who I am. I, I, can't, I can't help myself. So I wonder if this woman began to feel a sense of hope, hope that she could change. Jesus says to us today, you've met me now. You have a relationship with, with the Messiah, with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's a new power that you have access to. You can change because you've met me. There's something different in, in you because of your encounter with me. There's something different about you. You can go and sin no more. I wouldn't tell you to do it if it wasn't possible. Go and sin no more. It won't be easy, but you can do it. Jesus gave this woman a word of hope. Now, we need to be honest here. This woman's shame did not end at the Temple Mount. Everybody she knew knew that she was the woman who had been caught in adultery. Everybody knew that. I wonder if her marriage survived. I wonder if she was shamed by others in her village after that. The thing is, in the midst of that shame, in the midst of those tough times, this woman could say, the Messiah told me that I am not condemned. Jesus told me that I can go and sin no more. Jesus told me I am free from my shame. The Pharisees called Jesus a friend of sinners. That was meant to be a title of derision. But Jesus wore that label as a badge of honor. Friend of sinners. He loved the outcast. He loved the sinner. He loved the one that no one else would love, the one that experienced rejection again and again and again. And he invites us to wear that same badge, friend of sinners. We need to ask ourselves a question this morning. Is our church a place that the outcast, that the person who's been rejected elsewhere, that the sinner could come and be accepted, be welcomed in? Or do we have a lot of Pharisees who would meet them at the door? It's a hard question. It's a difficult question, but it's an important question for us to ask ourselves. I'm going to finish with two brief stories. The first one is based on a book called Under the Overpass, which was written by a guy by the name of Mike Yankowski. Mike was a college student at Westmont College in the Santa Barbara area, and, and during his sophomore and junior years, he went on a bit of a quest. He started asking himself the question, would my faith survive if all the comforts of my life were taken away from me? Mike had a wonderful Christian family, Christian friends, a wonderful network of safety and, and plenty of financial resources. But he began to ask himself, if, if all those things went away, would my faith survive? Would I continue to believe in God? Would I continue to serve and love God without those? If I experienced what Job did, would I continue to serve God? And so he and a friend by the name of Sam decided to spend six months on the streets of America as a homeless man. They were going to spend one month in each of six different cities, living as homeless men, finding places to sleep on the streets. That's where the name of the book came, Under the Overpass. They often found an overpass to sleep under. Finding ways to get food, either by panhandling or dumpster diving. They lived the life of homeless men. And Mike relates many of the experiences he had over those six months. And one of the ones that just struck me was, was a difficulty in finding community at church. They, they continued to worship on Sunday. They'd show up in churches ready to worship. And he said it was very difficult to find community. People didn't approach. People didn't welcome. People didn't greet them as they entered into that, 
that church facility. In fact, when they'd come in and they usually would sit in the back of the, the worship center, people would move away from them rather than move towards them. Towards the end of the book, he makes a statement that just cut to the core. He said, we found it easier to find community, to find acceptance in the local bar than in the local church. Wow. Second story happens in a worship center as well. There's a homeless man who enters the back door in, in the midst of a worship service. The worship center is, is packed. It's, it's a, a full worship center for worship. And he realizes it's going to be hard to find a seat. He, he's come because he wants to worship. And so he begins to make his way down the side aisle looking for a seat to, to join in and to sit down, and hoping maybe somebody will move to make a little space for him, but, but nobody does. As he's making his way down the aisle, the congregation is noticing what's happening. They're wondering, what's this guy doing here? Why is he here? This has never happened. He shouldn't be here. What are we going to do? He continues down the aisle and makes it to the front row and no space. And so he, he comes and he sits down right on the carpet in front of the front row, right in front of the stage. About this time, one of the church elders gets up, starts walking down the aisle towards the man. People are thinking, oh, good. He's going to take care of him. He's going to tell him. He's going to make him get up and go. He, he's going to let him know he doesn't belong here. The elder gets to the place where the man is sitting. And he stands next to him. and He looks down at him. And then he smiles. And then he sits down next to him and begins to worship with him. As I was preparing to preach this week, I felt like the Spirit was telling me, Crosspoint is like that elder. This church family is like that elder who sat down beside that man who had experienced rejection probably every day for the past year and sat with him and worshiped with him. This is a place that looks for the stranger, the stranger in our midst, the person who's here for the very first time, who moves toward the new person, who embraces the person who maybe hasn't been embraced in a long time. It's a wonderful thing to know that this is a church family that desires to love the sinner, to wear that badge with honor. Friend of sinners. It's a wonderful thing to be able to say that about this church that I love. We don't get it perfect. We miss the mark from time to time, but we desire to do it right. And I think that's glorious. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being a friend of sinners because I am a sinner. I need to hear those words, you are not condemned. I need to be reminded that because of your empowering spirit, I can leave my life of sin. Thank you for the hope that floods my soul when I hear your words. Jesus, help us to better love the sinners in our life, the people who struggle we struggle to love or to like or to accept. Jesus, you show us how this is done. Help us to learn from you how to be like you. Jesus, we each want to be like you. And we want our church to be a place where the sinner can come, where the sinner can find you, and where the sinner can find a safe place to grow and to become like you. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.